BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The brain, while still mysterious, is an information processing organ. So in theory, researchers should be able to capture and decode the electrical signals that neurons send to each other. In practice, it's proven pretty difficult. Brains are extremely complex and you have to physically access the brain. Over the past several years, however, the technology has been coming along aided by new machine learning techniques. And today we talk with two researchers who are working on brain implants that could let people who've lost their ability to communicate find a path back to language. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Imagine that you undergo a major stroke or have an accident that leaves you alive, but shut inside your own mind, unable to speak and with very limited movement. Right now, the communication options for people in this position are really limited, essentially eye-tracking devices that allow someone to painstakingly create a few words per minute. A new generation of brain implants could that could, and eventually, allow people to communicate much more fluidly. Here to fill us in on the potential and the difficulties of these neuroprosthetics, we're joined by Bob Knight, Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at UC Berkeley. Welcome. Thank you. And we're also joined by Alex Silva, an MD-PhD student of medicine and bioengineering at UCSF in the Chang Lab. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, Bob, before we get into the new results, we first want to give people kind of a sense of what neuroprosthetics are. Like, what are, what are the components of these kind of systems? Uh, well, I think uh, probably the one that people might be most familiar with is a cochlear implant, which is a neuroprosthetic device. And, you know, it's interesting when people first proposed to use uh, cochlear implants, they were kind of, people said it never worked because there's, you know, literally tens of thousands of hair cells and you're trying to put in a, a, a stimulating device with 60 something contacts, it won't work. Mm. But guess what? The brain is amazing in extracting signal uh, out of this kind of limited amount of information and pretty soon the patients can hear. Then another device that I think is very commonly used now would be deep brain uh, stimulation for control and movement disorders. And probably the most common uh, use would be for uh, Parkinson's disease, you know, where people have trouble with slowness and 
trouble moving and there's you know one to two million people in the u.s alone with this and when they fail medications which most people eventually unfortunately do this is a way to give them uh, control and that's definitely an implanted neuroprosthetic device in the brain where you're targeting a very small area of the brain that if you shut it off basically people move better it's a, it's a little area that stops you and if you shut it off you move more hmm. and that's become widely used and and now it's it used to be that the patients had a turn it on and off when they felt slow or stiff. But now we've got closed loop where you can sense that whether the motor system is slowing down and turn it on. So those would be two really highly successful, I would say, neuroprosthetic yeah. devices. This work that we're talking about now, though, where we're trying to sort of read signals uh, from the brain via implants that are you know directly on the surface of the brain. Um, tell us a little bit more about how those work. Well, uh, you know, uh, I, I'll, I'll let Alex talk about the UCSF work, which is beautiful. Basically, you know, all when sensory information comes in, whether it's vision or touch or audition, it activates brain cells and brain areas that are specialized for initial processing. So the information's there. So what we try to do is capture uh, in, in the work we've done that in, that electrical activity and turn it back into whatever the sensory input, uh, sensory input might be could be touch where you're pressing, you, you know, you basically press on someone's hand and the sensory area is activated. In our case, it's the auditory area. And I think for your, for me, for your readers, the sim your your listeners, the simplest uh, way to think about this is is basically someone who is a really good piano player. And they watch somebody playing the piano with the sound turned off. That person can look at those keys being struck and they can reconstruct in their mind what that person is playing. In a way, that's what we're doing. We're treating each electrode on the surface of the brain, brain as a piano key that has information about the sound input. In this case, it was Pink Floyd, but it could be anything. And each electrode can have multiple different things that it contributes to the uh, under uh, the analysis of the sound, so the frequency, the rhythm, how different electrodes interact. And at that point, it gets pretty complicated. If it was one electrode going up and down, that's one thing. But mm -hmm. in our case, it was you know roughly a hundred per subject and many more in in the in the Chang uh, the Chang work. And that's where machine learning comes in, which basically, is just math. It's basically using math to look at multiple inner, uh, regressions, how this relates to this, and and extract a pattern, basically. So that's, that's yeah. in essence, yeah. what we're doing. We're reading the piano keys of the brain. Alex uh, Silva in the Chang Lab there at UCSF, can you tell us a little bit more about what you were trying to accomplish with the work that you were doing? Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me. And, um, yeah, we were working with a, a really inspiring and, and dedicated participant, Anne, um, who about 17 years ago had a stroke um, that left her with quadriplegia and uh, an inability to fully um, and co coordinatedly uh, move her facial muscles uh, to produce speech. Mm. Um, so what our goal was, uh, was to create a, a neuroprosthesis or a device uh, that would be able to um, restore more natural communication uh, for Anne. And, um, we tried to go about this in, in a few ways. So uh, first, we wanted to build on our prior work showing that words and sentences uh, could be decoded from, from brain activity. So we wanted to do that now um, with a higher vocabulary size 
and uh, a rate that was more, you know, close to natural conversation. And um, kind of going off the lines of some of the, the awesome stuff that, that Dr. Knight is doing, uh, we also wanted to uh, directly synthesize speech or decode actually the speech sounds uh, because there's lots of information contained there that goes beyond text, like mm. cues as far as pitch and intonation that are important for how we convey meaning. Um, and then finally, we wanted to explore this kind of very new modality of um, avatar facial animation. So from the brain activity, we wanted to decode actually orofacial movements and and animate those in a virtual avatar. So, you know, we're, we're, we're over the radio today. We're not in, in person, but um, <laughs> you can think that, you know, you might be taking cues based on like each other's facial uh, expressions. So smiling, laughing, frowning, you know, acting surprised. Those things are also super important for, for conveying meaning and uh, providing like a, a fully embodied and, and more natural uh, means of communication. So just for to restate for listeners, if I have this right, same brain recordings essentially go through machine learning systems and output both the, the speech, some of the sort of cues around the speech, like the ups and, and downs, as well as animating an avatar. Yeah, so, so we took the, the brain activity recorded from, uh, similar to what, what Dr. Knight was saying, these electrodes that sit directly on the surface of the brain. And uh, I think one distinction here is we put these electrodes uh, over an area of the brain um, that's really not less involved in, in sensation but more involved in, in motor movement. So hmm. uh, we think we're picking up on uh, neural activity related to uh, Anne's intent or attempt uh, to move her, her facial muscles. And we're taking that activity and, like you said, going through uh, kind of three different algorithms, one to, um, to animate the, the, the facial avatar, one to actually synthesize um, speech sounds, and another to, to decode words and, and text. That's so interesting. And so the way you train this machine learning model, right, is you had like a thousand phrases, and she basically just thought about saying them, and you guys recorded that and, and then used that data, right? Yeah, so that's, that's pretty much uh, exactly what happened, except kind of one distinction there is uh, she actually didn't just think about saying them. She actually made an attempt to say them. So hmm. uh, she didn't vocalize, but... Uh, she made an attempt to move her her, uh, her facial muscles the best that she could um, to say those uh, uh, phrases. And we think that that's really important because uh, a key concern of, of ours is privacy with these devices. And we really want to be picking up on uh, the user's actual intent to, to, to communicate uh, speech. So um, the system actually really relied on, on um, her attempting to, to say these phrases. But you're exactly right. So Gosh, we collect right. like tons of these these trials um, over the course of about 14 days. And, you know, um, like what, what Dr. Knight was saying, you can then use these machine learning algorithms to kind of learn patterns in the, the data. So associate kind of like activity across, you know, many electrodes with certain sounds or certain movements. And, and that's kind of what drives the, the ultimate uh, performance. Well, let's listen to a couple of the things that we, we have here from this work. First, um, let's get back into uh, Bob Knight's work at Berkeley. We're going to play a little snippet of Another Brick in the Wall from uh, Pink Floyd. All just a brick in the wall. All right, and then... Now we're going to hear what was reconstructed um, by 
Dr. Nice team out of the brain signals of participants in their study. Bob Knight, for those of us who are not specialists, um, what do you hear in this reconstruction that we might not? Um, I, I think I hear what you hear. It's the reconstruction. It to me sounds like someone singing underwater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really pretty. I would say I don't know what the right term is. Muddy, not clear. Mm-hmm. And I there's I think there's a a pretty simple reason for that. Uh, we were when we collected this data a long time ago, around 2010. We didn't have the fantastic um, technical ability that uh, Eddie Chang's lab has with these very high density electrodes. So our patients had electrodes that were separated by roughly a centimeter. Um, so we had we the and if you look, the higher the density mm. of electrodes, the more information from machine learning. So we had a patient who happened to have high density electrodes, which was three millimeter spacing. And actually that one patient performed slightly better than the aggregate of the other 28. So Hmm. I think if we had higher density electrodes, it would even be uh, probably less um, muddy, if you will. But the sounds are there. The rhythm is there. uh, So, you know, we were we were pretty. We were pretty pleased with this first shot out of the box. Again, yeah. I think if we had to do it over again and we had the advantage of higher density electrodes, it would be much cleaner. We're talking about efforts by researchers at UCSF and UC Berkeley to decode the signals in the human brain and the future of neuroprosthetics. We're joined by Bob Knight, professor of psychology and neuroscience at UC Berkeley, and Alex Silva, an MD, PhD student of medicine and bioengineering at UCSF in the Chang Lab. We'd love to hear from you. What are your questions about this fascinating technology? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. We're on Twitter, Instagram threads. We're kqed forum or you can join the discord if you don't know how to do that go to kqed.org forum i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned support for forum comes from san francisco opera set 10 years after a school shooting the critically acclaimed opera innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about efforts by researchers at UCSF and UC Berkeley to decode the signals in the human brain. We're talking about the future of neuroprosthetics. Joined by Alex Silva, an MD, PhD, student of medicine and bioengineering at UCSF in the Chang Lab, and Bob Knight, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at UC Berkeley. 
love to take your questions on this technology and you know the idea of having devices implanted directly in brains. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and threads, KQED Forum. Um, Alex Silva, I do want to also have um, our listeners hear some of what you were able to reconstruct from the brain signals uh, reaching your the electrode on the surface of the brain. Uh, before we play um, a cut, do you want to give us sort of like anything about the experimental setup before we, we hit play? Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know how the experiments went. Uh, it's similar to what we were talking about earlier, but uh, a phrase would, would come up on the screen and um, Anne would then be prompted to attempt to the best of her ability um, to repeat that phrase, and uh, she'd be doing it silently. Um, and you know, once that attempt was was um, conducted, machine learning algorithms uh, were trained to take that the neural activity uh, recorded from the, the the electrode array on the surface of the brain uh, and um, decode that that activity into speech, the the avatar, facial movements, and then also text. So let's listen into some of the sound that was produced. Just want to let everyone know that you know in the video. Things go on for longer. We condensed a little bit for for uh, radio. Here we go. What do you think of my artificial voice? We will get to that later. Is there anything I can do? How often do you do this? I will talk to you soon. Tell me about yourself. That was the outputs of a system that UCSF designed for a patient who uh, lost her ability to speak, I think, 17 years ago. You know, there's a bunch of questions I have about this setup. I mean, let's start with this one. Do you, like, if a, a phrase is flashing on the screen and she's instructed to try to say that phrase, is it just, like, one attempt? And sort of how do you know when that attempt sort of begins and, and ends? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's one attempt and... Um... In you know in in the training procedure we actually um, give cues, uh, so the the participant Anne will be um, cued on the screen. So uh, the the phrase will turn green when she should start her attempt. And actually, what we found is that the machine learning algorithms uh, very quickly learn how to pick up the boundaries, so the start hmm. and the end of the attempt. And that's something that we were able to decode with uh, with pretty high accuracy. Um, and uh, yeah, able to to leverage that during um, during evaluation of some of the models. Yeah. Other thing I wondered is, you know, you've got a preset library of phrases here, about a thousand, as we were saying earlier. So you're not generating on the fly. How come it doesn't sound totally fluid then? Yeah, yeah. So so the uh, the a thousand words actually it it wasn't a a, a preset um, library of phrases, but actually a preset uh, kind of library of words. So. Um, for evaluation with the with the thousand um, word vocabulary, those sentences that um, you hear in the evaluation were actually um, never seen during training of the models. Got it. Um, now we also had these smaller sets, so around fifty and and five hundred um, twenty uh, sentences. So so those were kind of um, uh, those were preset like libraries, and those were the model was able to see that um, that during during training. Um, but to your question of why it's not kind of perfect, I think uh, it goes back to, to what some of the stuff that 
Dr. Knight was saying, I think in the future, as we can sample these, these neural populations over the motor cortex with higher and higher density, uh, we really think that that's going to drive improvements in the technology. And we've already seen uh, a big improvement uh, with going up to this um, 253 electrode array that has kind of three, three, center, three millimeter um, center to center um, spacing on the electrodes. Got it. And that's just because, the, as you know, Dr. Knight was saying earlier, the closer together the electrodes, the more information you're able to pick up from the brain signaling. Right. So I think, you know, as you're able to, to pick up information from closer and, and closer contacts, you're able to just sample more neural populations on the cortex and, and you're able to find more uh, unique and distinct features uh, that are, are contained in those populations. And there's been lots of uh, awesome kind of recent work um, on more the, the device and technology side showing that uh, this technique that, that both studies are using, electrocorticography, uh, so electrodes placed uh, directly on the surface, it's uh, abbreviated as ECOG, um, that actually like this can be scaled even further. So we can get higher and higher density recordings and, and hopefully, you know, in the future that can, that can allow better and better performance. Yeah. You know, when we're talking about the synthesizing speech um, from this, it's kind of where this work kind of intersects with your own, right, Bob? Because part of the reason that you're interested in this kind of music and, and musicality is that that might be something that lets us get at the sort of, you know, the real rhythms of human speech. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to make one comment, and I think Alex is a perfect example of this. 20, 25 years ago, neuroscience was biology. Now neuroscience is biology, computation, and engineering. And Alex is a perfect example. He's getting a PhD in bioengineering. So there's been just tremendous advances. And you can get independent activity on the cortex probably at a millimeter or a millimeter and a half. So I think the future is really, as Alex pointed out, is even higher density. Uh, electrodes. From the music perspective, we started actually with word reconstruction, and actually uh, Eddie Chang led that effort around 2010, 2012, where we were able to reconstruct words from the brain, and then we worked on imagining uh, what words you were doing, and that has morphed into this this beautiful motor work that they're um, they're doing. From the music perception side, I think what it has the potential to add is more about the prosodic elements of speech, right? You don't, to make it more, I would say, humanoid instead of less robotic because music has prosody, emotion, rhythm, et cetera. And I could envision the eventual prosthetic devices having a combination of auditory activity and motor activity, uh, you know, combining those two. The other thing about music, I just like to, it is a universal phenomenon. So mm -hmm. independent of neuroprosthetics, if you go to a foreign country and you have no idea what they're saying in terms of the language, you can still appreciate music. And that's a beautiful thing about music. It extends across all cultures. And the work that Ludovic Bellier, the first author, and the other people you know, were able to accomplish, where language is predominantly a left hemisphere uh, function in most people, uh, 95%. Right-handers have language in the left hemisphere. Music is bilateral, both auditory regions. And interestingly, a right hemisphere um, a dominance. And that could be important for another group of patients that we've been looking into and doing research on. And that's a phenomenon that's been known for you know roughly over 100 years. 
you could have aphasia, which you mentioned at the beginning of, of the of the of your your show, where people have trouble speaking, so-called broker's aphasia. Uh, and it's been known forever that they actually can, at least half of these patients who can't speak can perfectly sing the words. It's re- when you see a patient, it is just remarkable. You go, what just happened? And it turns out that in the research we've been doing, it's not just overlearned things like happy birthday. They can sing new things that they've never, you know, tried to express. So I think trying to unlock how music is organized in the brain could have other implications for unlocking singing ability in to, to, as a communicative device in the many, many patients in this country and around the world who are suffering from uh, speech output problems from, from stroke, for instance. So interesting. Bob, I mean, one of the immediate questions I'm sure people have is just, I mean, this requires having electrodes on the surface of the brain, which means you've got to go through the skull, which seems um, like it limits the applications here. Is that the only way, like the only foreseeable way um, to do this in the near future, at least? I'd like to say it's the only way, but I've been, you know, there's been so many develops in my career. I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to make that that claim. I will say this, that if you have a severe speech problem, I, I think having electrodes placed on your brain in key areas that give you the ability to communicate with your family, loved ones in the world is definitely p- people are going to do it. Just think of the park patients, right? I mean, there's there's untold numbers of people with implantable devices to, to improve uh, Parkinson's. Now, could something else happen? Yeah, I think one area I'd be looking at is the developments in low temperature superconductivity, uh, which is related to picking up magnetic, so-called magnetic encephalography. That I don't think it'll ever get to the one millimeter or, or Alex's uh, three millimeter um, precision, but it it can localize neural sources from electrodes sensors put on the surface of the brain right now you need to be you know you need to be minus 280 something kelvin to do this but if you can have superconductivity at room temperature i could envision an external scalp device that might get at some of this the other thing i should mention is that although we're trying to decode precisely what was heard right the song another brick in the wall and Alex and his colleagues are trying to precisely decode the intention to sequence phonemes. There's something else that could be done in in the intermediate period, and that's actually what's called categorical perception. Did you want to say "I love you" versus "I'm hungry," or mm. maybe five or ten different phrases? I think that is doable with simple. With not shouldn't say simple. <laughs> it should doable with scalp EEG. And that's another area that some labs around the world are pursuing. It's not the the elegant, you know, work that that Alex is describing on a large vocabulary, but it would be a nice intermediary step if you could say, "I'm hungry. I have to go to the bathroom. I love you, etc." And that would be categorical. So a brain pattern in the EEG says, "Hey, it's more likely." Let's say in music, it's more likely Pink Floyd than the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, mm. or it's more likely this sentence or that sentence or this sentence. So that's another thing that's uh, in the works in many labs. Alex, talk to me a little bit about how you see the technological progression here. I mean, at, at least one thing is wireless. Right now, these are wired systems, right? You'd like to make them wireless? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think 
Dr. Knight made a lot of really good points. Um, and yeah, I think uh, one, one definite next step is, is making the system wireless so that researchers don't have to be with the participant to connect the participant um, to the system and the participant can use that system kind of freely as they wish. And another thing there, like uh, an advantage of the wireless beyond that is actually it could really help the decoding algorithms because you can think then that um, you could potentially collect many more hours of training data if you know researchers didn't have to be there and the participant kind of was using it freely in their their day-to-day -day life you can be you know training your models on on much more um, data and and that I think can have uh, some really high uh, impacts on the the performance um, I think one thing along the lines of kind of the categorical uh, decoding that Dr. Knight was talking about um, one thing we did in this study is decode the identity of 26 um, NATO code words um, so like Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, one for for each um, kind of letter uh, in the alphabet. And what we showed in, in the past is that these can be used to actually allow the participant to spell out um, kind of any phrase they want. Um, and in this study, we were able to decode these these words uh, with around like 95% accuracy. Oh, wow. And actually, if you, um, if you froze the model, so what that means is uh, you took a model, you trained it on a bunch of data, and then you didn't touch the model. Uh, for you know a couple months, uh, we could actually maintain around the same uh, level of performance. Um, so as far as feasibility of the technology, I think, like Dr. Knight was saying, having some sort of categorical um, classification aspect as well uh, in there is is something we think is is going to be very important for uh, a real life kind of use right. of usability. Right, yeah. usability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about efforts by researchers at UCSF and UC Berkeley to decode the signals in the human brain and help people communicate with the outside world. We're joined by Alex Silva, an MD-PhD student of medicine and bioengineering at UCSF in the Chang Lab, and Bob Knight, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at UC Berkeley. I'd love to hear from you. Do you or somebody close to you have a medical condition that's resulted in a speech impairment? Uh, how might this you know, technology help help you to speak. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. We've got a uh, comment from Trish. Um, Trish writes in to say, uh, in primary progressive aphasia, we understand that a buildup of the protein tau is the cause for the eventual loss of all ability to communicate. As this disease nears its fatal end, dementia sets in as well, but there are many years before the dementia takes hold when communication declines gradually. Would this technique hold out any hope for people with primary progressive aphasia? A family member recently died from PPA, but for most of his years post-diagnosis, he was able to understand speech and formulate thoughts, but he was not able to get them out either on paper or vocally, but the thoughts were there and the understanding was there. Um, Bob Knight, you want to take this one? Oh, sure. Uh, I think the the general answer would be yes. If you it, it, in, if you have an output aphasia, uh, we like in primary progressive aphasia, uh, it is possible that you could uh, tap the person's inner thoughts. I mean, the the, the difficulty with primary progressive aphasia and the degener the, uh, the the neurodegeneration in general is the 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 target keeps changing. Uh, in terms of as the brain loses you know, cells, but it doesn't mean it couldn't happen. I, and I think since this question was brought up, there are other things that that you wouldn't think of that might be amenable to the, this this 
uh, broad work in the field of neuroprosthetics. For instance, people with very severe stuttering, people, uh, unfortunate kids with you know uh, developmental disorders, nonverbal uh, apraxia. Uh, in fact, since this work came out, I've gotten an email from a mother exactly with that situation. Mm -hmm. So I think the general answer is uh, yes. Yeah. Alex Silva, what do you think? Are there particular conditions you think this would work um, especially well for? Yeah, yeah. So I think um, the kind of the setup that, that we used in this study um, would work uh, well when uh, the injury happens kind of downstream of, of the motor cortex. So we're talking about injuries to the descending motor pathways that go from the motor cortex uh, through the brainstem, through the, uh, through the, the uh, cranial nerves, to the uh, the orofacial muscles, mm -hmm. uh, so that might include you know damage to those um, cranial nerves. Also, you could think about uh, a cervical spinal injury, uh, brainstem stroke, uh, or motor neuron disease, or or ALS. Um, so I think the the condition of, of primary progressive aphasia uh, that's an interesting question. I I think it would really depend on whether the uh, cortical representations on the motor cortex remain intact and are getting the correct inputs from higher level structures, which I'm not sure that would be the case in, in PPA. Uh, so it may require um, something similar to, to Dr. Knight's work of recording from, from different areas of the brain, or there's uh, some work out in uh, Caltech from, from Dr. Anderson and uh, Sarah Wandelt that um, is recording from an area in the, the parietal cortex. And, you know, maybe those areas remain intact in PPA and, uh, mm have representations that are uh, decodable. We're talking about efforts by researchers at UCSF and UC Berkeley to decode the signals in the human brain and help build the future of neuroprosthetics to help people who've lost their ability to communicate. We're joined by Alex Silva, an MD, PhD student of medicine and bioengineering at UCSF in the Chang Lab, and Bob Knight, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at UC Berkeley. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. 
I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about efforts by researchers at UCSF and UC Berkeley to decode signals in human brain, and we're also talking about the future of neuroprosthetics. Joined by Bob Knight, professor of psychology and neuroscience at UC Berkeley, and Alex Silva, an MD, PhD student of medicine and bioengineering at UCSF in the Chang Lab. Um, want to throw one to you, Bob. Uh, Blaine writes, I'm a musician, and I have always heard complete pieces of music in my head. I'm often composing new pieces of music in my head, but I'm only able to get a few of those pieces out of my head and into a recording. It'd be really interesting if this technology could take those tunes and record them to audio. I assume that getting a brain implant is not something that's going to be available for sort of musicians or recreationally for maybe ever. What do you think? I... <laughs> I don't think anybody is going to get a brain implant to to do this, but it is a really interesting question. And I was actually approached about a, a musician similar to Alex's uh, case with a brainstem infarct locked in. Uh, who is would there, would this be helpful in terms of composing mm. uh, music? And I I think the the broad answer is yes. I think I think Alex really nicely laid out the the that the the. <clears throat> The first type of patient you go for is someone with an intact brain, but an output problem, as in this the particular case with the brainstem in, in, in their uh, injury in their patient who's locked in. Uh, ALS, like, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking, again, locked in with an intact, uh, you know, uh, brain uh, uh, thinking uh, process. Uh, but there are other, as, as you know, as we discussed, there are many other diseases that are not in, in a sense, perfect in the sense of an intact brain that might be amenable to this kind of neuroprosthetics. I, I, I think, you know, as, as a, you know, as a neurologist, I, I mean, it's just the whole field is so exciting to me because these things were not even being discussed during, you know, when, when, uh, during, mm -hmm. when I was doing my residency in my med school, this whole field of neuroprosthetics, it didn't exist. So I think, in a way, the sky's the limit. I don't want to put any boundaries on it. I don't want to produce false expectations yeah. uh, for people. That would be terrible because you know it's 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 interesting to speculate. But in the end, Alex and my lab, we're we're kind of focused on something that is an assisted the end an assistive device to help people with neurological uh, disorders. Bob, do you uh, think in in your career? that the surprise in the development of the technology has been more around the machine learning algorithms and how effective they are at decoding these kind of messy signals from the brain surface? Or do you think it's been more in the actual electro development and the, the hardware? Well, I think the first thing is that the first thing is that investigators decided it might be possible. So it wasn't really technology or mm. or, or math. It was people saying, "Hey, maybe we could, you know, tap these things." Mm. So I think it started with human input, and then I think the development in electrodes and, of course, machine learning have just continued to uh, continue to um, evolve. The initial efforts in the early 1990 and so on was scalp EEG and looking at the, these brain signals related to detection where you can, you detect the letter, you know, E and you get a brain response and you could spell. It's slow and effortful. Uh, it's a little faster than, you know, the eye tracking. Uh, but th those were the initial kind of things and people saying, hey, can we do this? And, uh, but you're exactly correct. I mean, and it, it, it's, it's this fusion of biology, ideas by you, by people, fused with electro development and fused with 
these new mathematical algorithms for handling massive amounts uh, of data that you get. You just think about it. We're getting millisecond by millisecond recording in, in Eddie's group, hundreds and hundreds of electrodes over an extended period of time. In some ways, we we had it a little bit easier. We only had a limited number of electrodes and we only had three minutes or four minutes of the song. We wish we had more, but uh, again, you, you work with what you have, basically. Yeah. Let's bring in some callers here. Let's uh, let's bring in Clyde in Oakland. Welcome. Hey, how's it going, Alexis? You guys hey. are great. Uh, thank you. And shout out to UCSF because I'm a transplant patient uh, from with a kidney from UCSF. But most importantly, um, ten years ago, I had a stroke, and I was uh, I'm fascinated by the hemispherical influences, right, of the brain, right, left. I'm a musician. <clears throat> And my, when I had the stroke, my speech was very slow to come. And I still have some aphasia, and I get nervous and stuff, and blah, blah, blah. But what changed everything is that as I walked the mile and a half to the gym at the YMCA downtown Oakland, um, I would sing to myself. And I started writing songs, and uh, I... As I started writing lyrics to the songs and with notes associated, right, da da dee da, whatever it might be, I started playing. This is my story, whatever it is. Hmm. As I combined those two things, something started to change. And over about a two-year period, I was doing this sort of thing, and all of a sudden, my friend said, "Clyde, Clyde's back. Huh. His personality. You're back, man. You're back." I'm like, "No, I'm not." I'm broken. But they're like, no, you can speak again. You're back. And that just blew my mind. And I've been continuing to write lyrics. I'm an instrumentalist. So writing lyrics was odd for me, but now I do it all the time. And it helps my ability to speak and yada, yada, yada. So I'm very excited. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, You know, Bob Knight, um, you know, I, I, I assume that you have heard through your you know long career people who've used music to improve you know their uh, their health after suffering from a brain injury. Yeah, I think Clyde, thank you for sh- uh, for sharing your experience. I think Clyde is a case study of the power of of of, of music in helping uh, people with language disorders uh, recover. Really, uh, beautifully described. He's kind of like. You know, there's a field called melodic intonation therapy where you take patients who have trouble speaking and you try to use music to help them speak better. And I think Clyde just figured it out on his own. So kudos, um, yeah. uh, kudos uh, to you. And in fact, that's one of the things, as I mentioned earlier, we're hoping, you know, this long held, long known clinical phenomenon, ability to sing uh, when you can't speak. And I think Clyde was internally singing. Uh, so, uh yeah, uh, pretty yeah. remarkable. Um, let's bring in another caller, Howard in San Leandro. Welcome. Hi, uh, thanks for your time. I think this is fascinating. I'm an engineer, more on the electronic and cybersecurity side, but I hear you guys talking about the density and granularity of the sensors. And I was wondering if you might be able to comment on the work being done at Neuralink and their implant robot and the electrodes they're using. I know that's not surface, that's implant, but um, hope you'll take the question. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Howard. Thanks so much. Um, Alex, let's uh, let's go to you on this. 
Yeah, so I, I think the work being done at Neuralink, like you said, it's a little bit of a different uh, approach than, than what was used uh, in, in, in Dr. Chang's lab and also Dr. Knight's. Um, so they're, they're attempting to record actually intracortically from, from electrodes that, that penetrate into the cortex of the brain and record from more uh, single and, and multiple neurons. Whereas uh, these electrodes that sit directly on the surface, they're, they're instead recording from hundreds of thousands of neurons. Um, and I think one of the reasons that, that we're really, um, really like positive about the, the future of, of using these electrodes that sit directly on the surface of the brain is they offer the potential for, for very stable recording. So um, like we talked about earlier, these 26 NATO code words, um, we could still classify those with similar accuracies without updating the model at all for, for a few months. So that really just shows that the signals at these, these contacts that are sitting on the brain are remaining relatively stable over time. I think another advantage from recording directly from the brain surface is there's, there's a precedent for, for clinical uh, treatment. So for epilepsy, um, patients will sometimes get these kind of electrodes actually implanted chronically uh, over the, the time period of years in, in kind of a device called a, um, an RNS uh, uh, system. So uh, we think that those two things really um, lend some future uh, viability towards ECOG. Um, I think we're all excited to see what the, the results look like from, from uh, studies from Neuralink and, and how kind of the, the technology and capturing data from, from smaller like populations of neurons, how that, that compares. Mm. You know, um, Tater uh, over on our Discord has, a, has an interesting kind of technical question for you, Alex. Can the model learn better by combining what it learns from different individuals to make a better starting point, or does it have to learn each specific person starting from zero? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I think that really gets at like how potentially in the future this technology could scale to to many participants. I mean, it would be awesome, right, if if data from from prior participants could be used to speed up uh, training in a new participant, and maybe then the participant doesn't have to spend a, as much time or as many days, um, you know, training up the system. And in this work, we found that actually very early on with Anne, um, models trained in our in our prior participant. Uh, actually were able to expedite um, training and performance, which we thought was really cool. Uh, there was also a paper uh, from the lab a few years ago that showed in some of these epilepsy patients who, who you know, were healthy speakers um, that, you know, training models across, uh, across uh, participants uh, was able to expedite the training uh, period in a new participant and, and increase performance. So uh, we think that that's, that's really possible and um, largely due to the fact that um, we're putting the array over the motor cortex of the brain and over a pretty large uh, surface area of the brain, so about the size of maybe a credit card. And um, hmm. we think that the activity that's driving these models are really related to the attempted uh, movements of things like the lips, the tongue, the larynx, uh, the jaw, which, um, you know, in, in Anne, we saw an organization there that's, uh, that's very similar to what we see in, in intact speakers. So... I think it's really promising for the, the future viability of the technology. So interesting. Um, so, you know, I have to ask this question. Does it mean that if you're inserting, you know, electrodes that cover a credit card size chunk of the brain, does that mean that much of the skull is being removed? Yeah, like, so, so I'm not a, an expert in the, in the procedure, but Dr. Chang is, um, you know, an amazing neurosurgeon, and um, uh, this is a procedure that's, that's actually... Um, it's done pretty commonly for, for surgical treatment of epilepsy. So yeah. essentially what they're doing is they're, they're taking this, this piece of 
uh, skull away. They're putting uh, a, uh, an array down, and what they're doing is they're looking at the different electrodes on the array to see where the patient's seizures are starting. And then, you know, that informs which areas Dr. Chang or another neurosurgeon will, will, will resect to kind of um, treat the, the epilepsy. So there's, uh, there's a large precedent uh, for, you know, the safety uh, and um, implementation of this procedure. Uh, there's a, a paper in, in the Journal of Neurosurgery uh, from the lab kind of outlining that if, if you want to, people want to dive into more detail. But um, it's, a, it's a procedure that's done for clinical practice, which, you know, yeah. gives us some some hope and kind of the precedent. And one of the goals of uh, the clinical trial we're doing is really to evaluate the long-term uh, outcomes of this uh, potential kind device. procedure. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's bring in uh, Pamela in Larkspur. Welcome. Hello. Good morning. I was really interested in this program. Recently, I had surgery called DBS or Deep Brain Simulation. I have an uh, inherited uh, problem called essential tremor. And in the surgery, besides my neurosurgeon, there were two bioengineers, and all three of them had to agree on the precise, within less than a millimeter, of where in the brain to put the electrode and uh, because of that, I'm fully able to write, to eat, uh, to hold a cup of tea, etc., and walk, which I could not do very well or at all wow. before the surgery. It's incredible, and it's newish. I have implanted in my chest a stimulator, which I charge, and I joke with my friends and say, well, I have to plug myself in today <laughs> <laughs> so that I won't shake. And I'm so grateful for that neurosurgery. And um, when my mother had it, of course, they didn't even know what essential tremor was. Yeah. And wow. now look at what they can do. It's just incredible. Pamela, that makes me so happy. Just like the the ability that it went like that is so, it's just so great. And, you know, Bob, now you were kind of talking about some of these surgeries that, that can be done and that you've really seen advance in your career. Thank yeah, you no, so much, Pamela. It, yeah. it, Pamela, thank you for sharing your story uh, with us. That's really, uh, really great to hear. And again, you know, I, I mentioned about deep brain stimulation for, um, Parkinson's disease, the next big use is essential tremor, which can really be incapacitating as Pamela nicely, you know, de described us. And she's exactly right. You have to uh, target a very um, specific nucleus in the front part, the anterior part of the thalamus. And basically it's a little bit like in Parkinson patients, you shut it off and it can, the network improves and the tremor is, a, is uh, ameliorated. And there's been, as I mentioned, there's been uh, tremendous work in newer electrodes that do the stimulation. And I don't want to get too, you know, into the weeds here, but Pamela, there's even more stuff going on. So these devices in the next generation of patients like you will even be um, uh, more fluid uh, in, in terms of their uh, ability to, to help patients. Yeah. 
You know, I wanted to ask you both this question as we, we come to the end here, which is, you know, if you had essentially, let's just say, huge amounts of capital, ver- verging on infinite amounts of capital to do this work, I mean, how much could you accelerate the research? Is it that we need more technological development, or are there really limitations to our understanding of the brain's, you know, very complex networks and signaling and, and cell function? Maybe we'll start with you, Bob. Okay, well, I think uh, if you gave us a dream amount of funding, the, uh, the the speed of the research would be dramatically accelerated. I do want to just give a, a shout out to our funding agencies who've made this possible, the National Institute of Health and the Brain Initiative. I think it's true for the Berkeley group and the UCS and the UCSF group. And David, you know, there's a massive in, uh, initiative in neurotechnology, but, you know, the work is, you know, not trivial, not simple, requires complex teams of people. So uh, yeah, if there's anybody out there with an unlimited <laughs> please do send it to Eddie's yeah. lab. You can send us a little bit at Berkeley, but you know, yeah. I think that's where the actual implementation is happening. Yeah, Alex, what do you think? I mean, are, do, are, are we limited in the knowledge we have or are we limited on the sort of implementation side by funding? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I'm sure Dr. Chang and our, our lab would take, you know, any funding uh, that came yeah. our way. But um, yeah, I, I think uh, yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of both. So I, I would say uh, on the knowledge side, where where we're limited, I think is um, I don't you know the question earlier about primary progressive aphasia. So how do we expand this technology to treat? Uh, a variety of different um, speech and language disorders. So I think that's an area where, you know, as as our understanding of the brain and understanding of speech production and perception continues to advance, we'll, we'll have more kind of knowledge about how we can target different brain regions and kind of expand beyond treating this kind of like damage to the output tracks. Yeah. Um, as far as the implementation goes, though, I think absolutely there would be a, a big acceleration and I think specifically there's a need for very practical engineering because, you know, if you take this device, uh, potentially now it could be integrated with um, iOS or things like that. But to do that in a safe way is really important yeah. to respect the privacy of the user. Yeah. Thanks so much to both of you. We've been talking about efforts by researchers at UCSF and Berkeley to decode the signals in the human brain with neuroprosthetics. We've been joined by Alex Silva, an MD, PhD student of medicine and bioengineering at UCSF in the Chang Lab, and Bob Knight, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at UC Berkeley. Thanks so much to all of our listeners. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Form Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.